Hey, podcast listeners. Today, entrepreneur, actor, and biggest loser coach Dalvet Quince sits down with Brian to talk about human programming, relationship equity, and that despite the peaks or valleys in our climb, to keep growing regardless. Stay tuned for a special story about Brian's dad and Muhammad Ali. And don't forget, sharing is caring. So if you get something out of this episode, pass it on. One of the things that I would love to talk about is, you know, a lot of people know you from um, uh, The Biggest Loser, which obviously you've become passionate about health and fitness. And I think right now during this time, as we were just talking, uh, the world's come virtual. Um, But, you know, what started getting you super passionate about fitness? Like, why did you make, when did you decide and why did you decide to make fitness and health part of, you know, your life and your, your career? Like what, did it coincidence happen? Was it a real passion? Did you do it on purpose? Um, you know, tell us a little bit Smart of the backstory. Question. Um, it's a good question, Brian. I think for me, um, growing up the way I grew up, knowing that it made me feel good to help other people. I knew whatever my career choice was going to be was I have to help people. I have to, help people only because it helps me, right? I figured out very early on in life that if you face your fears, you face your demons, uh, you look your problems dead in the, in the face. And I'm no guru, no monk, anything like that. But I knew the answers was don't ignore it, look at it, solve it, respect it, and then move past it. If I can give anybody anywhere in their life direction those skill sets, it just then they're gonna win. It just so happened that fitness was a catalyst to help out frame of mind, to help out spiritual strength. And they're all connected in my opinion, right? And I knew early on that people identified with physical transformation as a way of growth. But once I was in, I was in, right? Like once I was, Once we were here and connected, I knew that we could have bigger conversations. We could explore other parts of you that may have damaged you to the sense to eat the way you eat that put the weight on in the first place. There's more weight in the brain than there is in the body. So if I could help out here, I can help in there. To even have that level of awareness, there had to be a defining moment in your life. Like, you know, I've always said this, you see someone successful, you see someone that's accomplished some things or someone that's making an impact on other people's lives. Um, there's a history there, right? There's a, there's a receipt. And if you go back and look at the receipt of Dolvet, or you look at the history, like what was that defining moment? Like where you overcame to became, or, uh, you know, you, who, you're who you are now because of, of not the successes, but because of what you've had to go through, right? It's given you huge perspective. What what was some of the early things that kind of gave you that perspective as you started getting into your career? First of all, I'm stealing overcame to became. I'm stealing it. That's mine now. Okay. That's awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I was definitely afraid of my adopted parents. I don't even know if you know anything about my backstory, but Mm-mm. you know, Adopted parents took in me and my brother and sister. I have two brothers and one sister adopted us, but they were so old school. You know, you spare the rod, you spoil the child, right? So 
they weren't reluctant with fists. They weren't reluctant with electrical cords. They weren't, they weren't reluctant to hit us. That was their way of disciplining us. Um, but I think more importantly than that, it was also taught in me through them to that I wasn't good enough and I wouldn't amount to anything. And, you know, uh, uh, my brothers and sister are fair. They're much lighter like my mom. I'm the only one with this complexion. It looks more like my dad, although I never met him. That's what I've been told. My adopted parents pointed that out. You know, they made fun of me and ridiculed me for being darker than my brother and sister. So they gave me a lot of things internally, a lot of reasons not to like myself. What happened to me when I made that turn and I overcame to became, you know, I overcome to become was when I approached my father. Can you imagine being deathly afraid of someone? And then they said, oh, okay. And like you're a little kid, you reacted in a, in a very afraid and an abused sort of way. I'll never forget the day I just woke up one day and said, hey, I, I know you don't mean this. I love you anyway. And just hug the man. I'm literally a kid, probably 11 years old, and I'm shaking as I'm hugging him. I felt a sigh of relief come through. I don't want to call my oppressor. That's a bit dramatic, but... It just came through him in a way that was like, oh, wait, you're not as strong as you pretend, pretend to be, or you're not as scary as I thought you were. Maybe if I hug you more, you would yell at me less, right? Maybe if I talk to you more, I could kind of understand, you know, I didn't win it every time, but every, you know, I, I wasn't always, not every time I did it, it, I, it got, it was right, but Every time I did it, I got stronger. So for me, that turning point, 11, 22, I can think of specific times in my life that when, when something I was most afraid of, I didn't know the answer, I approached it. I talked to it and I talked through it. Yeah, so at age 11, though, that's young, right? That's like what, super young, bro. Yeah, especially if you're like in an abusive, uh, which I imagine you're being very, uh, cat, like, when you're in that environment, there's more than just switches taking place. It's, I mean, even just the yelling probably was. That was more severe than the switches. Yeah. Is, right. But at 11, like, how did you get the courage to even confront that? I have, a, I have a, a huge faith, bro. I, I would say I just kind of leaned on God and just kind of prayed a lot and been like, you know, uh, let me, uh, let me see, let me see. Let me find the answers. I don't know the answers. Uh, I went to my older brother. He didn't know the answers. I found people in my community that I looked up to and talked. I was always a seeker of not since I was a kid. How do I get better at this? And I emulated where my stepfather may have failed. I saw a guy, Mr. Adams, who was a lawyer and a leader in the community and had four kids and a beautiful wife. And so I would go knocking on his door and just ask him questions. I'm 11 years old. I'm 12 years old because I know that I wanted to be like someone, like I idolized someone. If I'm going to be a man, I want to be like that man, not the man who's hitting me or raising me. So I always sought answers. I mean, I, I don't know. 
Yeah, no, I think you started being. I mean, and that that's important even today. If people are like looking to to grow, um, you just started modeling at a at an early age without even knowing the term modeling. Um, Right, but that's polarity, right? And and admiring too. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I'm I'm a young kid, and I'm looking at him, and you know, again, he was a leader in the community, and his sons were just dope, and one played soccer and the other one was a basketball player. I'm like, I want to be like that family. Better yet, I want that family. I'm 11, I'm 12, I'm 13, right? I'm looking up to him like this. I'm the little kid growing up and we're around the same age, BU. And, you know, I'm getting goosebumps when Muhammad Ali's on the screen and he's beating up that guy. You know what I mean? And uh, uh, Martin Luther King is there. You know, I'm I'm emulating those guys and I'm getting that internal strength from them. But then there's the neighbor down the street, Mr. Adams, who sort of reminded me of them. And so I started creating in my mind these images of what a man is and the man I wanted to be at a very, very young age. Very cool. And then at 22, you said there was a defining moment at 22. You mentioned 22. I mentioned 22 on purpose because, uh, uh, Valicia, Isaiah's mom, was pregnant, and I was about to be a dad, and I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. <laughs> I had no clue. I was 22 years old. Hey, listen, I'm 47, and I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm figuring it out, bro. And at that age, it was like, damn, what do I do? How do I do it? And for as much as... I cared for his mom. We were two different people. I was ambitious. I was driven. She was very settled with her life. Uh, Even at that age, she had a child. She told me a year after dating her, guess what? I have another child. I didn't want to tell you, but the grandmother has full custody because I already had this one and I'm young and da, 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 da. So we just didn't see a lot of eye to eye. So I'm like, I had to make a decision. Do I keep pursuing my life with this woman or do I pursue my life and still take care of my son? So I chose to pursue a life, build a career and also help him out at the same time. So it was just trial and error. And so how old is he now? He's 23. He is the age that I was when he was born. Wow. (laughs) That's cool. I couldn't imagine. I was literally, uh, you think I'm joking. I was thinking about this. One of the things I was thinking about uh, last couple of nights, I've been waking up middle of the night thinking, and I was thinking like of different times in my life when my dad was 47, right? So I was like reverse engineering. Okay, so 1984, University of Kentucky went to the final four. My dad was 40, like, because I can remember basketball teams. I know it sounds crazy, but, um, <laughs> you know, and then, and then I was thinking about just like, uh, roommates of mine, like in college that got married right out of college and they have, you know, they're done, right. They have 21, 20, they have men right. starting off and, um, but everything happens for a reason. I think that's, that's really cool. So where, where does Isaiah live now? He's in the next room. Oh, very cool. And so that's he lives not in that cool. Room. Why do you have room? Can he move in with you? No, but it's cool that he's that you're there. Like he's there. No so I, mean, it's, I didn't know if he was like in Atlanta or Connecticut. No, he's so he's in he's in LA. He's in Los Angeles here with me. Lives with me. 
the whole thing every day. I hear him singing in the background right now. <laughs> well, I'll trade you. He can come live here if you'll take these three there. <laughs> I'm done. No, I'm actually not done. I, I say that loosely. I would do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Just wait till quarantine's over so you don't have to be the uh, the teacher as well. Exactly. Exactly. Like uh, I was in between these things. I just went in there uh-huh. and um, to grab a drink. And I mean, they're just they're. I don't want to do math. It's hilarious. But um, what so, are the ages again? Tell me the ages. Six, seven and 13. So the 13 helping the seven year old. Nancy's helping the six year old. It, it is crazy, though. So that's cool. What's he what's he doing? Well, what's he doing in L.A.? Um, he works for a production company. And he also works part-time at a gym, a boxing place. He goes to school. So um, he's still in college. I think he's in his third third year now. Yeah. So just those three things. Cool. Staying- so tell us a little bit about, like, right now during this time, um, how important do you think uh, health or fitness, sweating, movement is to people's mental health? I think it's an amazing compliment. Listen, anytime you challenge your body, you force your mind to move. You know, it's just a chemical thing. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a necessary thing, right? You got to have a sense of purpose, a sense to, and when you do move, your body reacts in a beautiful way or your mind reacts in a beautiful way because you're challenging yourself. Sometimes if we sit still and we get dormant, we send it just give our mind permission to sit still and be dormant as well. Um, what happens is this. I think if you have a schedule, if you create a schedule, and the first thing that you do is say, okay, I'm going to challenge my body for 30 minutes. I think what that does is it affects the clarity of thought that you can actually get things done throughout your day. Um, we all need that boost of energy, whether you're taking ketones and you get that boost. But if you're taking ketones, for example, and you work out, all you're going to do is elevate your clarity and it's going to affect your day in a very, very positive way. You're going to see that you're, you're, you're more upbeat, you're more energetic, right? Um, now is not the time to sit down and just stare or watch other people move on your television screen. Now is the time for you to move because if you move, it's going to proactively affect your life. Right. And you'd mentioned if you move uh, 25 minutes a week or more of strenuous exercise, they, uh, Dr. Kunane did a study, your, your a body will adapt 33% more ketones. Like it'll be able to utilize more ketones or more fuel. So that's kind of, cool. I think that's so important, especially for this community to understand that taking the ketones isn't just the isn't the only way to go about it but if you really want to complement the ketones you should move as well and all you're going to do is elevate your experience right yeah so i mean so we need to start moving i mean look i got the ketones down i just need to start moving i'm ready to move (laughs) I mean, what you waiting on, brother? Let's go. Hey, listen, I can procrastinate with the best of them. Whatever I do, I'm going to excel at. You know what I mean? So if I'm going to procrastinate, I'm going to be damn good at it. I'm going to be a damn good procrastinator. That's right. Hey, so talk to us a little bit about, um, you have an upcoming book, Work Out the Doubt. What is it yeah. about? What? Um, work Out the Doubt is really about working out all the head stuff that we go through, right? We talked just now about procrastination. 
that's a mental thing, right? That's you saying to yourself, this is more important than I am right now. This is more me, this business, than I am me, my body, right? And working out the doubt is sort of working out the fear of, can I, can I be great over here as well as here? Can I be successful in more than one bucket in my life? You know, um, I didn't want to do a book about quinoa. <laughs> I didn't want to do another book about protein shakes, bro. I just right. didn't. You know, everyone does that. I wanted to talk about spiritual health, emotional health, mental health, physical health, and also social health. So I have five different categories that I talk about in the book. You know, people are like, why social health? Because association is elevation. Whoever's in my circle, they're either going to pull me down or bring me up, right? They're either going to add value or, 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 or bury me, right? So that piece is so important. What you bring, who you rock with, who you associate with goes a very long way in your spectrum of health. No, there's no doubt. It's you become who you hang around most, right? We've all heard uh, the whole analogy that you are the sum of the top five people, top five. Or you're the average of the top five people you hang around with the most. And that, uh, choose, you know, love your family, choose your peer group. I just talked about this yesterday with someone is, about uh, that. Love your friends and your family, but that doesn't mean you have to choose to be around them the most. Right. Yeah. That's why you, that's why you call me every single day. Cause you love me so much. That's right. Exactly. I mean, yesterday, you know, you just got to keep people, you got to keep them on their toes. You know what I mean? Don't, that, like, <laughs> you don't keep them on your toes. What are you going to do? Um, no, it, that's awesome. I can't. So when does the book get come out? You know what? I'm trying to finish it up right now. This is a great, great question. Here's the good news. I just found out. I have three more months here in Los Angeles on quarantine, so it will be out before. <laughs> I didn't know that. I just knew you were, I thought, listen, all right, so I, I said this three and a half or four years ago. I need to do a podcast. I need to do a podcast. And then right. I was like, and then a year went by. And then I bought like three or $4,000 worth of equipment. Never Same. used it, you know, and, and yeah, exactly. Never used it, sat there. And um, so when quarantine hit, I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to for real do it. But I don't know. You know I mean? But I think that's probably what uh, kind of what you're talking about is we let procrastination sit in. We can all say what it, what it, we can all make up a story kind of like what you said, but you have to face that fear. And for me, I know that even doing a podcast, there was a certain level of fear. Like, well, will people listen to it? Well, will it be as good as people anticipate, you know, do I have anything to say? Well, there's a million podcasts out there. Like, you know what I mean? But like for me, this has been great therapy, just um, almost like even meditation, because I think that um, as you kind of go through, uh, it reminds you of what you know, because you get to talk about it. You get to talk about it with like-minded people of it. Yep. or yourself. And so yep. it's been, for, for nothing else, even if nobody listens to it, it's been therapeutic for me. So. I would never question if I were you in your position that you've created for your life, whether or not people are going to listen. I think you need to take pride in the fact that when I hear you speak, I know it just doesn't come from you. I think once you're on and you create a rhythm and a pace of what you want to say, and you always, in my opinion, come from an honest place, people intent, they automatically intentionally tune in because it's not something that they just hear, but it's also something they feel. So for you to have a podcast makes sense. And the fact that you're as busy as you are, that's okay. 
my dad had an expression that said, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person because busy people always like, I just give it to me, I'll get it. You find a way to figure it out. You know what I mean? So just keep, keep on keeping on, bro, because they're, oh, I appreciate that. not only are you loved, but you're valued from the perspective of giving people hope. You just don't talk about supplements and your product. You talk about life. And I think that's where people connect to you. Well, I appreciate that. And it's funny, I smiled really big because my dad said, he used to always say the same thing. Give somebody something busy, something to do, they'll get it done. Right. You know, and uh, yeah, that's, no, I appreciate that. I mean, but, you know, I, I think it's important that also people realize that uh, even, you know, someone sees you for having the success that you've had and you've overcome to become and, you know, you, you're this, you know, successful uh, coach, actor, entrepreneur, uh, you know, you've been Stay on handsome. TV, Stay celebrity, handsome. whatever you want to define yourself. They handsome. Well, easy, easy now. I mean, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, no, but, but, but still that you still, uh, we, we deal with the same challenges or sometimes the same fears. We just program ourselves to get over it quicker. Yep. You know, and so I, uh, that's. But that, why do you, why though? Why do you think, why do you think you're able to get over things quicker than someone who is not? What do you think it is about you and your mind? What have you. It's programming. It's the people I've hung out with. It's, I mean, I think from what you said, you know, I've been very for, fortunate and blessed my whole life. Um, I didn't always realize that though. I've been privileged. Like I, I was born in privilege. And, okay. um, but when you're born in privilege, um, my dad came from nothing. My dad was beat. My dad, you know, was in Russellville, Kentucky, uh, during the prohibition years. And he, uh, but he got out. He was the first, first guy and first person in his family to go to high school, finish high school, go to college. And his whole life was about providing for his family more than he had. But my dad always, you know, had this, you know, he always used to say, it's not where someone's at, it's where they're going, right? So he always just believed in the underdog, even, I mean, that's who he was. Like That's no, I love that. To his core essence. And he, um, so he instilled in me, so like, you know, even when I was growing up, I was the only white kid on my basketball team, but I didn't see color necessarily, right? Because they were just my friends. Mm -hmm. And so um, I didn't realize how privileged I was. You know, they would come over to my house for Thanksgiving, they would invite me to their house. And I remember one time I looked at my dad and I was like, well, why can't I go stay with Udsi? And he lived in Village Village West, which is it was at the time the most dangerous project. It was the hood. It was the hood. Yes, and and I uh, I'll never forget. My dad said, "You're right." So my dad let me go stay stay the night. You know, he's like, "You should." Now my mom about freaked out. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously. Like, but like, I went down there and and I got this polarization understanding. But it wasn't until later on in life, even in my twenties, that I realized. You know, when my dad dropped me off for school and said every day, be positive and confident in all you do, be positive and confident in all you do, you know, that started kind of my wiring or peer group and having great coaches playing basketball that um, I don't want to say I took it for granted because I really have appreciated everything in my life. But at times we do take things for granted, you know, and, it's human. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's kind of like you, you know, we for people to overcome to become, I think that at some point in their life there has to be polarization to where either it's not just what they want, but they don't want what they, they don't want. It either hurts them. It hurts bad enough that it makes them move or, you know, there's some type of contrast. There's some type of defining moment, but I also believe it's, it's uh, the people that we meet, the books that we read, how, we, how we're programmed. 
Um, I, that's just my core belief. Uh, it's somewhere starts there. You mentioned, what was the guy's name that you mentioned early on? Mr. Leroy Adams. Leroy Adams. Leroy Adams was someone that he became part of your influence circle. You just mentioned circles mm-hmm. at 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you saw him as a peer, as a light. And so I think that, you know, I think that dad said, dad said, be positive and confident in all that you do. Mm-hmm. Are those the words? Yeah. So you were programmed early on. Yeah, you're right. Before you got out of the car to go to school. Yeah, I'm going to be confident. I'm going to be positive and confident in all that I do. So if someone constantly puts that light into you, right, I'm going to be positive and confident in all that I do. And then you have these coaches that are cheering you and guiding you. You, you can't stay down for too long, right? And so you have the tools. If something bad comes along, eh, that, that's not me. I'm actually more this. Because dad said early on to be positive and confident. I'm positive and I'm confident. Oh, my goodness. I rose this business up. It failed. We were talking earlier about a guy who had uber success, got put in jail for mail fraud or whatever it was, and then he kills himself. Why? Is it because he wasn't positive and confident? Is it because no one told him that? How can you have that level of success? Was it the guilt that said to you, I'll never bounce back to the old me? Everyone else is doing so well. Here I am locked up. No one programmed him to go back after the fire burns him. Or, or what was this? What was it? I don't know. First of all, I don't know the answer to that question. However, my speculation would be, uh, if I peel back the onion with you or peel back the onion with me or Don LaPrey was the guy's name, right? Right. Uh, is I think that we all seek, uh, unless we are a, a certain degree of a sociopath, we all seek love. Like love to me is the greatest. It's the greatest yeah. gift so, or and desire it, yeah. that we all have in common. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that probably drove him um, early on, I don't know what his background was or childhood was, but, he probably thought being that level of success would get him more love, more uh, acceptance or whatever it might be. And so maybe whenever that was cut off, he felt like that there was no, no way back. I don't know. Or maybe it's growth. Uh, you know I mean? I, the times that I felt the most alive, I don't know about you, but it's, it's when I, it's not about the accomplishment of something. I used to think that I guarantee you that if I ask you and you can just be blunt as hell, the biggest loser in being on that show was awesome. awesome. But the thrill of the journey to get there and be on it, you, you know what I'm saying? It was like. Yeah. Yeah. But the difference is this. The difference is not only was the journey great for me and getting there and kind of figuring out, right? I love those steps to get to that point. A lot of people don't love the steps to get to where they are. And when they get there, it's a bit of a surprise and like, oh, I can't believe I'm here. So if that peak goes away, they would never love the journey of getting to where they're at their level of success. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They almost, I call it the human thermostat or the financial thermostat, either way you want to look at it. They have a way of bringing themselves back down to the level, to their baseline level where they, they were already. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like if, if you sense. get yeah, to yeah. a level of success and you didn't love the climb that keeps you pursuing more or keeps you in the grind or keeps you in the process of life, then the, the, the thermostat hits a certain level, the air condition turns on and cools you off and brings you back down to this, mm-hmm. this temperature, right? And that's mm-hmm. where you're comfortable. Most mm-hmm. people love being comfortable. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, but like, there's nothing, there's nothing great ever accomplished being comfortable and you're not happy being comfortable. That's a t-shirt. Most people love being comfortable. That's a fact. So yeah. I'm not used to that. I'm used to being challenged. I'm used to being, um, figuring it out. Like I'm always in a state of learning always. Yeah. I mean, like looking back, I guess in closing, what would you say your greatest lesson that you have learned, if you could identify it in one or two things, uh, for someone listening in, what would be, what would be the, the suggestion or what would be the advice you would give them looking back on where you started and where you are today? Uh, what has been your greatest learning lesson or one of them? One of my greatest learning lessons, lessons be you is probably to keep going regardless, stay positive and keep going regardless. You're going to have great days that are so, oh my God, I can't believe how successful I am. I can't believe all this fame and fortune that I have. I'm done. Don't be done. Keep going regardless. Because you've reached somewhere that doesn't define you. Keep going regardless. There will be days you're super low. You don't understand why you've lost what you've lost. Uh, your peers are in a better place than you. Keep going regardless. So you just have to continually believe in yourself. Surround yourself with people that inspire you. Just don't be a taker where you're taking stuff from them, but add value to the conversation so that they can then get something out of you as well as you get out of them. Right. Yeah. I think that's important. Like that's something that even subconsciously people operate with a hook and they don't even realize it. Like they do something, if they can get something out of the relationship, most people something I've had to program myself because early on I was like early on in my business career, I was very good at building rapport or connecting with people and I had to, I had to start realizing to myself, I don't even like that person. I was right. only connecting with them because of what I thought they could do for me. They do for you. Yeah. And it wasn't to the point where I said, you know what? I'm strong enough that I want to be the person that can do it for someone else or do it for myself. Meaning I didn't. So then I could choose that I connected with them because I truly, the essence of connecting with them was value to me, not what 100%. they could do for me. Does that make sense? It's that something I still literally check myself at the door all the time. Like, wait a minute, you know, and being where you're at today, I mean, there's a lot of people that they want to be around celebrity, but like, do they ever take the time to get to know? Right. You see what I'm saying? Like, or in Hollywood is the, I mean, the Mecca of it. I call it a, or a whoring, a trader mentality. Right. And, um, And I love that. I've always said that if you want a great relationship with someone, like always have equity, give more to the relationship than you take out. And you'll 100%. Get you'll get more when you give more, period. Yeah. You just will. And to do it, I love that hook expression, right? To do it without a hook, to do it like, yo, what can Brian do for me? I should call him so he can do this. Not I should call him so I can do this for him. And you have not called me to ask me to pose on your talent show. <laughs> you, know, you know I can do that for you. I know you're gay. Like, you're a rhyme. I know you got rhymes. I know you got skills. I got to call you on that for a fact. And then you want to come in here and do this. <laughs> Shirts off. Right now, let's give it to him. Shirts off. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I don't, I don't want to blow up your, your Instagram. <laughs> Thank I don't, you, God. Thank God. You know. <laughs> That's funny. Hey, really quick. Uh, do you like Muhammad Ali? Love. You want me to tell you a really cool story? 
Please do. Okay. So, you know, my dad, uh, initially, he didn't know if he liked Muhammad Ali because he was very controversial, right? Especially, I mean, because... I mean, With the not he going came out during the civil rights movement. Yep. You know, my dad's from Russellville, Kentucky. Thought he was this loudmouth guy, but my dad learned like Muhammad Ali was his favorite character that's ever touched earth. Like, loved him. My dad waited in line when Muhammad Ali came out with his book for like five hours at the Oxmoor Mall there in Kentucky because Muhammad Ali is from Kentucky. From right? Kentucky, yeah. And um, my dad was the first one to to get his book signed. I'll send you a picture after this and. Uh, Muhammad Ali looked at him and goes, you crazy, man, you crazy. But my dad loved Muhammad Ali. Like, uh, if you look at some of the pictures uh, my dad has on, like, this one of the most recent pictures with my dad. He had on uh, a T-shirt um, that I got given to me by a guy that spoke at Muhammad Ali's eulogy, uh, John Ramsey, which was Muhammad Ali's best friend. Come in. I, and interviewed me. Um, and we started talking about my dad, my dad's love. And obviously, I love Muhammad Ali. Of course. And um, – and so we're, we're in the, you know, we're in the hospital um, and we stole about 24, 48 hours before my dad, uh, you know, kind of started sleeping, you know, as we we're going through uh, final stages of, of his life. And my sister was telling one of the nurses that my dad just loved Muhammad Ali. And um, my dad, we don't know, you know, he, but he said, I still do. Like he kind of, you know, cause he, he, he was at his base. He was coherent. Yeah. yeah a little yeah. bit. And, and so, um, and then a couple of days later, uh, you know, he's, he's there, we're there with him during the hospice period and it took five days for him to pass. And, um, my dad did not work out any funeral plans. Uh, he said that he wanted to be buried at Cave Hill Cemetery, uh, where one of his best friends was buried, Bob Hawkins that passed away about 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago. And, um, so I called Malia and I said, can you help me just call Cave Hill and see if they have a spot. I want to make sure my dad we can bury him where he wanted to be. And, sure. and um, I didn't even know Cave Hill is like this famous cemetery, but it's like in the top five cemeteries in the country. It's gorgeous. Um, like my business partner, Chris Harding, he's like, I didn't even know that they allowed people in there anymore. Like I, I thought it was closed. Like it's very historic. And, um, and so Malia did, and then, you know, he passed or whatever. Malia goes, okay, we need to go see these plots. I know how you are. Cause sometimes I'm anal about things. I don't think so, but they tell me I am. And I'm like, all right. And so we go by, and I don't like the place that um, that they sold us. That they showed you, yeah. 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 And so she goes, well, I have a couple more places. And she showed me this one. It was up on the hill. Loved it. And I said, so I was leaving, and I told Malia, I said, tell her we'll take that one. And Malia calls me back 10 minutes later and says, it's not available there. I sold it. She goes, but can you turn around? She has another place in the U section of the cemetery. Now this cemetery is huge. We'll go by there next time you're in Kentucky, whenever 2022, whenever the quarantine's over. Um, but uh, so we go back and she says, it's in the same section as Muhammad Ali. Mm. And uh, so I just thought, I was like, okay. So when we go back, um, we drive up to the lot. It's not in the same section as Muhammad Ali. It's the plot next to Muhammad Ali. No, it's not. No, it's I not. promise you. No, it's not. So like, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And I just start grinning eye to eye, like tears literally cut. You can ask Malia, like, I, you know, I just, my dad would just be grinning. Like he is right. He's buried right next to Muhammad Ali. There's nobody between my dad and Muhammad Ali. And my dad was good friends with Denny Crum, the former coach of the university of Louisville basketball team. And he has the plot in front of my dad. 
And uh, I was like, you got to be kidding me. This is all these, all these legends and going to rest next to each other. And, uh, and so, but like, there's not a human being that's ever walked the planet that my dad, besides his kids that my dad would rather be buried next to. That's awesome. I mean, so I called John Ramsey. Now this is Muhammad Ali's best friend. Last, the last 25 years of Muhammad Ali's life, John spent more time with him. Right. And, um, cause I had his phone number. I said, I got to tell you this story. And, um, I told John and he's like, man, he goes, everything happens for a reason. He said, don't think Muhammad didn't have his way. Like Muhammad Ali only later on in his life would surround himself with good people. There you go. He said, uh, I mean, it was just really cool. He, we talked for about 30 minutes and he was just Muhammad's wife right now and let her know. And, and, um, and so, yeah, so the plot they saved it for years and like literally they said if 90 days ago, I would have, they wouldn't have, they, they wouldn't have sold it to anyone. Hmm. Um, so it was just circumstantial. And uh, I just, I, you mentioned story. Muhammad Ali early and I just, yeah, you know what's funny? I, I'm good friends with his daughter, Layla, mm-hmm. following in his career, Layla Ali. Mm-hmm. He's actually been on the show a couple of times, Biggest Loser with me as, as my yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she's and, cool. I've never met her. I'd love to meet her, but I'm you'll, you'll meet her. I'll introduce you guys. She's a great human being. The funny thing is this, because I'm such a huge fan of Muhammad, just like your dad was. Um, and my dad yeah. loved him. My dad loved boxing, but my dad fell in love with him because of the humanitarian the humanitarian piece. Exactly. It's like, all, I see, I see the man and the legend, right? I see both. I see the work you did in the ring and outside the ring. And I saw something in my dad's eyes when he looked at Muhammad Ali as well. So real quick, every single Thanksgiving, I go home to Atlanta and I have Thanksgiving dinner with my friend, Justin Anthony, his family's dad. Da, da, da. We've been doing it for years. Sometimes my brother says to come, whatever. Isaiah comes with me. It's a big thing. One year, I was invited to go to Layla's house, but I had already booked my flight, landed in, L- landed in Atlanta to Thanksgiving dinner. And Layla was like, Talbet, are you coming? And I said, I'm already here in Atlanta, you know, I wish I could come. Oh, man, that's messed up. I wanted you to meet my dad. He's here with me now. And we're having Thanksgiving dinner. I was like, what? <laughs> I was so upset, bro. I can be there in six hours. It's just like, exactly. was, was she in Kentucky? They were in L.A. Because she visited, she, I knew that she visited Kentucky frequently like a decade ago. Maybe, right? But a year later, he passed away. Oh, wow. And I just yeah. missed. It. Yeah, he um, last time I saw him was about six, seven, eight years ago. I don't know when it was. It was in an airport, and I don't even recognize. I'm on the phone, and I get in the line, and there's a line. It's probably about a six or seven minute wait. You know, it's not okay. a ton of people, but for Louisville, it's quite a few. And um, and I look up, and it's Muhammad Ali. He's literally there's one person in between me and him, mm-hmm. and you know, it's his wife and caretaker and nurse and whatever, and they're in line. And the security guard comes around and says, hey, champ, you know, come on. And he wouldn't go. He's, he, he would not cut the other people in line. Mm-hmm. He waited in the line. And, like, I just become, like, in all, because you got to think of, like, all the stories my dad told. And then, obviously, I've done my homework on him. And, and I'm just – and he catches me staring at him. So then he goes through security. I'm, one other person goes through. Then I go through. And he goes over and he sits on the golf cart. And – he catches me staring at him and I said, we love you champ. And he looked at me and he goes, and, you know, cause he was in, I mean, it was yeah. but, it, but you could, you could tell like he just had that little bit of uh, 
so charisma, dope. but man, I just got, I got, what a great it. story with your dad though, bro. That's, that's freaking cool. It's, I mean, I don't know. I think really cool. it's just so serendipitous. And then the, uh, Dr. Don Dillard, who my dad did a lot for, um, he spoke at my dad's funeral. He was basketball coach at Christian County. And, and, uh, he, he said, he goes, you know, he said, I under, he told a little bit of the story cause there's only family in there. And he said, uh, but you know what we recognize is Muhammad Ali is buried next to the greatest, which I thought that was kind of cool, you know? So, but, uh, that was neat. I just, everything happens for a reason. So it was a little bit of a, uh, proud moment. Like, you know, since then I'm like, I don't ever want my family to have to worry about like where I'm going to be buried or whatever. Does that make sense? But like, it worked out because six years ago he started doing it, wanted, he was starting to make plans himself. But then I think his dementia, my dad had dementia, his dementia caught on. And so. Ali had that too, right? Ali had the same thing. No, he had Parkinson's. You're right. You're right. He had Parkinson's. It's still right. neurological, but he never lost his, he just couldn't communicate, but his right. brain still worked. Right. So, all right, man. Well, I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun, man. I'm glad we finally did it.